0: What happens when two parent coaches, one a Christian and the other an agnostic Jew, sit down to talk about
1: parenting? I'm Dina Thayer. And I'm Kira Dorian. Welcome to Raising Adults, a podcast about future-focused parenting. This episode of Raising Adults is brought to you by
0: Yetta Anderson with Family First Midwifery. Yetta and her team bring comprehensive care and safe birthing options to women and families across the greater Phoenix area. I know Yetta personally, and I can tell you that she is amazing. If I had another baby, Yetta is who I would want by my side. For more information on Yetta and her practice, go to familyfirstmidwifery.com.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Raising Adults. Kira and Dina here. And we have the pleasure today of speaking with Meg Flanagan, who is an education advocate and coach. And she is going to be a wealth of knowledge for us. We're I know we're personally also excited to learn from her, but for those of you who have kids either already in school or even approaching school age, this is going to be a really helpful episode. You're going to get some great tools and strategies to help navigate your child's educational career. So we're really looking forward to talking with Meg. And welcome, Meg. We're glad you're with us today. Thank you so much for having me. We're glad you're here. So we'll just go ahead and jump in. And maybe you could start with just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and the work you do.
2: Absolutely. Um, So I'm Meg Flanagan. I run Meg Flanagan Education Solutions. It's an education advocacy and coaching business and blog with resources for parents, um, which is not something you often hear about. So basically what I do is I help parents navigate those really tricky often tense and conflict-filled parts of school. Things like IEPs, um, 504 plans, gifted education, getting your child to do homework, and because I'm a military spouse, I specialize in helping military families um, locate a new school when they move. Um, uh, I decided to do this because we move every one to three years, and so you know, getting relicensed in a new state is very time-consuming and expensive. Um, and so I decided to keep my licensure in just a few states and then kind of take my knowledge on the road with me as an advocate and coach um, so I can continue to help people continue to um, you know work in education, but also be a little bit more flexible for my kids and my spouse. Um, right now we live in Japan, which is really fun. Um, I have a master's in special education and a bachelor's in elementary oh. education and I'm currently licensed in Massachusetts and Virginia in both areas. Um, so I draw on all of that plus my experience as a mom and just you know, trying to handle school, doing school searches for um, an employment perspective to help parents kind of feel peaceful and successful and confident at in those tough places at
0: school. Fantastic. So I am curious, what do you think are some of the key factors for a child's educational success? And what kind of specific involvement or advocacy from parents do you think makes the most difference? Like, If I was a parent, my kid's just about to start school, what would you want me to know in order to hopefully have the best and most successful experience for my kiddo?
2: so the first thing i would want you to know is that take a deep breath it's going to be okay
0: it's going to be okay everything
2: is going to be fine your child will be fine you're just starting out everything is fresh you're going to be fine the second thing is to take a hard look a really honest look at your child and their abilities obviously you cannot predict at age you know four five and six what your child is going to be when they're say 26 or 36 you, you just can't make those kinds of predictions necessarily but take a really good honest look at your child's achievement and abilities their strengths and weaknesses um, every child can learn but not every child is going to learn the same things on the same day in the same way and so you need to be really honest with yourself and with your partner and you know Squared away, you know, where your child is at right now, because if you're still working on say fine motor skills at age five, it might not be the most realistic thing in the world. Um, and I'm sorry if this sounds unkind, but it is important to be very brutally honest with yourself. You know, it's not, it's, you're not going to expect them to have perfect handwriting if we're still working on, you know, pincher grip. Um, picking up small objects with, you know, the first finger and the thumb. You just have to be super honest with yourself about your child and where they are. Um, That said, going forward, maintaining a positive professional relationship with your child's teacher is crucial. So starting out on the right foot, make sure that the child's teacher, your child's teacher doesn't just hear from you when it's something bad. Find something good or positive to highlight. Even if it's just, you know, we really like that art project or the science experiment coming up sounds so cool. It doesn't have to be something, you know, education-based or um, a lesson or a new skill your child is picking up. It can be something little. You appreciate their kindness or their generosity of spirit. Just pick something small and compliment the child's teacher on it because if you have that positive groundwork already laid, it makes it easier to go later if something negative or not so great pops up. It's easier to go back and say, hey, we have a concern about this. The conversation is easier and more productive um, than if you're only coming to the teacher about negative things.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So in your opinion, what would you say the parent's role is? Do you see the parent in school having more of a partnership? Or do you think the parent should more take the lead? The school should more take the lead? How would you say that should look?
2: Well, I think that it is important to remember, especially, you know, because there is a lot of overlap in achievement and success. But that, you know, home and school are often two very different spheres. You're requiring children to do different things. There's a there are certain responsibilities that you have at home and certain behaviors that you'd want to see at home that maybe you would not want to see at school. You know, I know in my own house we're very free with hugs and kisses and high fives and, you know, affection, but that is not appropriate necessarily at school. I don't want my kids just going up and hugging a classmate without asking permission first and getting consent. So I think that initially, especially in like those preschool to elementary age years, parents and teachers should have equal responsibilities parents should be focusing on you know those life skill areas manners consent how you behave in different situations Um, focusing on um, you know just just kind of the basics of being a a good human in the world and then the teachers can come in supporting that being a good human in the world aspect but also providing the academic structure for kids to progress in knowledge Um, ideally both Both spheres, parents and teachers, should be more of a guide, leading children towards a better understanding, towards better actions, um, towards active positive participation in society without necessarily, you know, rote learning, saying you must behave this way. It's much more valuable when a child reaches a conclusion about a particular thing, whether it's this is how I behave at a restaurant or this is how I do addition kind of on their own speed with their own language and skills.
0: So... What do you think then are some of the most common mistakes that parents make when they're working with a school, especially when it comes to creating a plan? So whether a kiddo's on a plan for behavioral stuff or learning stuff or maybe even a plan for a child who's excelling and is highly capable, do you see, you know, when you're working with families that there's just a common set of errors that these families are making that maybe inhibit them from having that relationship be so mutually beneficial?
2: Absolutely. Um, the most common thing that I see is the instinct to immediately go from nothing to it's a battle, to that full confrontation mode of I am going to right fight you, I am going to get my way, I need this for my child, I'm not willing to listen to what you have to say. And that's true on both sides. Schools can definitely also get stuck in the rut of, well, we do things this way, and they're not, sometimes they're not always willing to um, take a more creative, out of the box approach. So that would be the most common mistake is bringing that negative energy. Um, And then the second common mistake is not giving yourself and the school enough grace to get a fresh start. So I see a lot of parents. Um, both in my own client base and, you know, generally online who year after year, even though the teacher has changed, even though the administration team has changed, even if they've moved school districts, they still come in with that same negative energy instead of saying, okay, new year, fresh start. Let's, let's begin again. Let's come in, you know, take a deep breath and reset this, refocus this so that we can maybe try a different approach um but doing that does take a certain amount of um eating humble pie and being willing yourself as the parent to say okay things are not going well right now i need to fix this i need to start over how can i best do this and you might have to apologize you might have to make some compromises you might have to um you know eat a little bit of crow but if it's for the benefit of your child um, I feel like that's all 100% worth it.
0: Yeah, it's that old, I, I don't know, if I, I did debate team in high school. And there was this whole concept of giving ground to gain ground, that sometimes we have to be able to give a little in order to be felt like that the other person's being seen and heard, and that allows them then to give back. Exactly.
2: Yeah, I see a lot of parents that you know, they have a very particular idea of what their child needs. Well, well, she needs a one-on-one aid or he needs this very particular kind of sensory break or we need this very particular kind of, you know, math program or reading program. Instead of saying, I would like a specialized reading program, what can you offer me? Or I feel like my child needs more support, what can you offer me? And then waiting to see what the school um, team can provide or suggest or offer. Um, they immediately, it's either an all or nothing situation, they're either getting this exact thing that they want, or they're going to take the school to court. And that's not productive for anyone, you're, you're almost inhibiting your child from making progress and from potentially growing, because of, you know, a bias in your own mind. And I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm not saying your child doesn't particularly need that one on one aid or the math program or what, whatever it may be. But it doesn't, help anyone if you're not willing to be open-minded. And that goes for schools too. It doesn't help the child if you're not willing to try a different way or a different program or provide extra staffing. The goal, end goal of this is that a child achieves their highest potential with the tools that school and home can provide. And so in order to do that, home and school need to be working together productively and positively and professionally. And so getting angry, right, fighting, um, that doesn't help anyone. And I think that we need to keep the child in mind whenever you're talking to the school or whether you're having a meeting with a parent as a teacher or a school administrator.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Keeping the child at the forefront is huge. And on that, say a parent is at the point where they think we might need to get some supplemental help for our child or maybe supplement on the other side. They're maybe ready to move ahead. And that family wants to look at finding out independently whether that's true. Do you have resources that you recommend for families who would like to maybe have their child assessed? And if families do, just kind of as a follow-up to that, I'm curious, if families do get their child assessed, do you recommend they come with those results in hand? Or is it better for them to ask the school? Do you offer something that could help us with testing about A, B, or C?
2: So my first step would always be ask the school. And I actually offer on my website a free uh, mini course that you'll get by email that walks you through exactly how you can request special education testing. And this could cover special education testing, gifted education testing. It never hurts to ask the school because these tests are insanely expensive. We're talking thousands of dollars sometimes for just one test. And um you'd have to find your own test proctor. And that could be someone like neuropsychologist or neurologist or a psychiatrist or you know OTPT, speech language pathologist. Um so you as the parent, if you're choosing to do those independently, please definitely look into it, but also consider the financial costs and the time costs of hunting down your own expert and then paying for the assessment. However, if you do ask the school, they have many tests in the district, housed in the district that they already have the rights to. They already have um, connections with all of these experts. I understand that a lot of parents are kind of wary of doing this, just because they feel like the school um, person, the school test proctor, might have a bias for or against special education, for or against their child, and they want to get those third-party neutral, no skin in the game um, results about what their child is doing. So first step, always request testing with the school in writing. You have to request it in writing and say why you think your child needs testing. Um, In terms of what specific tests, it really depends on what your child needs. So there are, there are tests for everything. Um, but if you are, if you are going to be looking at getting testing, definitely talk to your child's pediatrician or primary care manager to see if they have recommendations as well. They often have, um, lots more information. And as a teacher, oftentimes my best friend is Google. So I will Google tests for behavior concerns, tests for specific learning disabilities in math, and it'll come up with a wealth of resources. Um, And you're going to be looking for a peer-reviewed nationally and internationally normed test that has been used multiple years in a row and is frequently updated based on new demographic data. Um, So things like making sure that it's unbiased for children of different ethnic backgrounds or different socioeconomic
0: backgrounds
2: um, is super important because sometimes it can skew one way or the other. If you do pursue getting a test outside of school and you haven't gotten a test at school, certainly share those results with the school. However, the big caveat is, is that the school only needs to consider your test results. They don't need to take them as you know standard. They don't, they don't need to use them at all, really. Um, the way the education law is written is that they only need to consider them in order to create either a plan for your child or to update a plan for your child or to educate your child. They just need to look at it and consider. Um, And the thing that they're considering is whether or not these test results demonstrate educational, academic, school-based impact. So for example, I see a lot of parents that say my kid comes home and explodes at home and their behavior is out of control. But school saying, that's not the kid we see. We have a perfect angel at school. They're in line. They're doing their work, blah, 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 blah. They're fine at school. There's no behavioral concerns. The school can only treat what the school sees. So that's something to keep in mind as well.
0: I didn't know that. So that's it's really important for parents to sort of understand the scope that the school has. It makes a lot of sense that they mm-hmm. can, they don't have any right to judge what's happening at home.
1: Yeah, but I'm glad that you mentioned that these independent things do exist. Because I know for us going to private school, we had to do that ourselves because it wasn't offered because it wasn't a public school. So it's great for parents to know you can pursue that on your own. It just doesn't mean it's going to result in necessarily a change to what's going on.
2: Right. Absolutely. And the other important thing to know is if you are homeschooling your child or your child is enrolled in private school is that oftentimes you are eligible for these tests and assessments and services through the public school district. So, due to um, the way that special education law is written, you're, you can request these assessments from your school district, um, and you can cite Child Find. The public schools in many states, if not most states or all states, um, have a onus to locate and assess and provide some level of treatment for children with special education learning needs in their district. So. In districts that I've taught in, we've had kids from the local private schools coming into our building to get 30 minutes of speech therapy once or twice a week because they were assessed and they needed that service. And so they come in um, to the public school to do that. Mom and dad gets them from private school at, say, 2.30, and they come directly to the the public school, and they have 30 minutes of speech, and then they go home. Um, So that is something to know. Even if you even if your child is enrolled in private school, you can access some of the public school resources. The caveat, again, is that private schools do not need to provide those services. They are not governed by special education law or um, federal, yeah, federal or state special education law. They don't have to provide a special education programs. Certainly if they do, that's wonderful. Um, but they don't have to. And so definitely parents should read up on their their state's special education law and exactly what their state or district can offer in terms of child find assessments and special services through the public schools, even if your child is homeschooled or private schooled.
0: Wow, that's great. I had no idea that that was, that that was the case. That's wonderful, I'm sure, for parents that aren't at public school to at least know that they have access to those resources. So I am curious, if if you have a family that is, you know, maybe consistently working their way through being gracious and being patient, and they're moving up, moving up, moving up, and maybe they've made it all the way to a district level, and they still feel like they're not being heard, and they're child is not getting what they need. How do you advise those families to proceed? And also from a mental health perspective, because I'm a mental health professional, what do we do with the children as we're working our way through this? Like, I understand completely the idea that we sometimes have to be patient, we have to be collaborative. But then how do we handle a child who's maybe struggling emotionally in this situation and asking essentially the child to be patient as well?
2: Those are great questions. Um, so I'm gonna answer about the district first. So if, you've been, if you're a parent and you've been going it alone and trying your best to you know, work your way up, go up the chain of command on your own, it helps to bring in a heavy. And what's a heavy? I am a heavy. I am a, an education expert that will come in and say, no, you're gonna to talk to me now. You're not gonna to talk to mom and dad. You're gonna to talk to someone who speaks your language. You're gonna to talk to someone who understands education law. And we're going to have this conversation because now you're not going to be able to use jargony phrases to pull the wool over someone's eyes or to say we don't do that here. Because my response is there is no such thing as we don't we don't do that here. You're going to do what's best for the child, whether that means, you know, a different program or a different setting, because at the end of the day, you have to do what's best for the child. That's what that's what special education law says. And again, this is not legal advice. I am not a lawyer. I cannot give you legal advice, but I can direct you to the right laws and it, and kind of say, this is how the law might play out in a particular scenario. But I can't, you know, be the lawyer and say, this is what's, happened. do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, we definitely yeah, do. Yeah. We're nodding. And, and I was saying, it's kind of like a birth doula, yes. like the doula can't isn't the doctor, but they can sure empower the parents to ask the right questions and understand what's being said to them. Yeah, we don't
1: do any clinical tasks, but we can help with the advocacy piece and the education piece. So we've talked a lot, and I know you help families be involved in this process. But I'm curious, and maybe you've even seen or can give an example. I'm hoping it will encourage our listeners to be involved. But where parents maybe can't be as involved or choose not to be as involved, what kind of ramifications does that have for a student?
2: Well, it, it kind of depends on the individual child. So for a child that's more of a self-starter, um, you know, I think it's just the lack of support. So they're going to be seeking that support from elsewhere. So a child that is a self-starter might be just fine. But for kids with needs on either end of the spectrum, either they, you know, are behind or they're ready to move ahead or they are ahead, having an involved parent is crucial to getting the right services and support. Oftentimes, um, oftentimes kids will get stuck in a remediation cycle at school where, you know, they're a little bit, they're behind in math and they're behind in math in first grade and you, you do some specialized instruction for a semester or a quarter and they catch up kind of, and then they're behind again in second grade and you do a little bit more remediation. And so having an involved parent at that point the involved parent would say, hey, no, you already did remediation in first grade and in second grade. And now in third grade, I'm concerned that we're continuing to have to, you know, pull my kid for specialized instruction. I'm concerned and we need to do some, we need to look into this further. But without the involved parent um, kind of looking over the school's shoulder and saying, this is not right. My kid needs more than what you're offering. That can often slip through the cracks. Um, Involve parents or parents that are advocating, uh, you know, kindly, gently, professionally for their child, um, but also very willing to stay firm and say, no, my child would benefit from the data shows my child needs this. And without that, um, there are are many schools that will do the bare minimum, that will do just exactly what the child needs or... um, maybe even a little bit less than the child needs just because they don't have someone pushing them to try for more. Um, and in that case, I would, if you're an educator listening to this and you see a child with parents who are choosing not to be involved or cannot be involved for whatever reason, please be that child's champion, um, work to get mom and dad or, you know, their, their guardians involved, work with maybe the foster care manager or their court-appointed guardian to, to say, I am concerned, I as a teacher am concerned, and I love this child, and I want the absolute best for them. Um, and, and lay out exactly what you want, um, even if that means you know getting on perhaps the bad side or the not-so-positive, warm-and-fuzzy side of your administration team, Um, I've seen many very brave teachers go to bat again and again and again for a child that needed more than what the school is providing. And it was always hard and it was always tough, but it was always worth it.
0: Yeah. So I'm not 100 percent sure that you got to answer the last question completely about, you know, what are we doing in the interim for the child while the parents are navigating all of this? Hopefully they're advocating um, but that, that patience that we're asking of the child, what, what do we do with that? Yes.
2: So kids are, the most important thing to remember about children is that they are highly resilient. Um, I mean, I think about my kids both physically and mentally. Um, but we do need to, you know, provide that kind of cushion in the bubble around them because we want our children to have a positive view of their learning environment. Wherever that learning environment may be, we want our kids to understand about respecting people in positions of authority and listening and trying their hardest. And so if you are a parent um, having some confrontations with the school, it's important that you not discuss it in front of your child. Very, very, very important. You know, you might or if you do choose to discuss it in front of your child and they're at an age and a stage where they can take part in some of those hard decisions, keep the phrasing neutral to positive. Just say we are having a disagreement with the school. It's not a it's not about um, you know, you or your your achievements. It's about how we are going to help you achieve in the school and mom and dad. Um just don't quite see eye to eye at this particular time. But we are working together to find a way forward where we can agree on certain things to help you be a better learner or a more productive learner. If you're not able to do that as a parent, it's better to wait um, to have those hard discussions with your spouse or partner or with a neutral third party when your kids are not around. Um, I've seen way too many times where mom and dad are not censoring themselves as much as they ought to be at home. And so suddenly a child that was a behavior concern for, you know, other reasons now becomes a behavior problem because they are taking a negative attitude about the school or the teacher into the classroom um, I've had kids say to me, "I don't have to listen to you." My mom and dad say that, say that you know you're not doing a good job. My, I don't, I'm not going to listen to you. My mom says school is stupid. Wow. You know, or you know, yeah. And so those those things are really heartbreaking because um, kids are little sponges. As much as they're resilient, as much as you know they bounce back, they're little sponges. And so whatever attitude you are bringing home into into your child's ear and into their noggin about um, about school, about the teacher, about learning there is they're soaking it all in. And so if you can remember just to phrase it in a neutral way, we're having a disagreement about about a decision that we need to make and we're not seeing eye to eye. That's better than saying I don't like your teacher because um, then you know your your little kid will come in and say, you know I don't like you. And then as they get older, that could translate into, I don't like teachers. I don't like school. I don't have to try. I, I'm i not going to try. And that becomes, you know, their actions for life, their their attitude for life. And then that carries over to their children and their children's children, perhaps. And so keeping it neutral at home is better if you are concerned that your child is if you're doing all the right things, you're keeping it neutral to positive, you're not talking about a tough situation in front of your child, and you feel like your child is reacting negatively, please reach out to a um, a, a therapist for your child, a psychologist for your child. Oftentimes, um, it's some schools and teachers are unable, just like parents, uh, they're unable to separate a negative situation from how they're treating a child, because we're human, and it happens. Um, And so if they're feeling like the teacher is maybe having a negative attitude towards them at school, or um, they're being singled out because of a disability, please don't hesitate to seek mental health support for your child. Um, I'm a big believer in therapy um, for anyone, but especially for kids, if we can kind of get them to talk, talk it through, do some art about it, um, whatever whatever strategies your mental health professional is, is trained in and choosing to use with your child, um, I think it's better for them to process it in a positive and sheltered environment than to sit on it and develop anxieties and um, attitudes about it that are negative.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as we wrap up here, I want to move a little bit into some more practical things. And we know that one of the things that you do is help busy families, squeeze in homework. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to give a few tips to our listeners that they might even be able to start trying to make homework time go a little bit easier.
2: Absolutely. So my number one tip is, um, whenever your child gets home from school, whether they're coming off the bus, or you're picking them up, or they're coming from sports practice or an after school activity, give them a break between between the moment they walk in the door and the moment they start their homework. It could be a really quick break, you know, five minutes, uh, you know, to wash their hands and change into play clothes or whatever. It could be a longer break of go outside and play for 30 minutes, have a snack. I always advocate for having a snack, um, in between after school and homework. Um, it's really hard to concentrate on anything. If you, if your tummy is rumbling, um, I know that I get really hangry, um, and I can only imagine how little bodies must feel after being so still for so long. And it, school is really hard. It's really, really hard for little kids, um, for any kid really. But I think having a snack, having a movement break. And if you've done those things and you notice your child is feeling frustrated or struggling with a particular piece of homework, please don't hesitate to offer them another break. Say, hey, we're going to break for dinner. Let's go take a walk why don't you go outside and play, give them a good break to reset, refresh, refocus, maybe refuel, and then come back and say, I know this was challenging for you before, but we've had a minute to decompress and think it through. How about if we sit together and we'll try again? And even if you're not actively doing the homework with them, even if you're just maybe helping them think through a problem, or you're just sitting beside of them, reading your own book or doing your own work, and you're just there kind of as you know, a touchstone for them, that's beneficial. If you notice your child is continuing to struggle and feel frustrated and upset, just stop the homework. Just stop. There's no point in continuing. There's no reason for, you know, a seven-year-old to be crying over math homework. That's foolish. That, that helps develop negative attitudes towards math and phobias about math and anxiety about whatever the homework is. Um, and so I would always advocate for just stop, just stop table it. Um, if it's an ongoing project, say, Hey, we're going to pick this up another time. And if it's just a nightly, like tonight's Wednesday night's homework or whatever, you could just say, you know what, I'm going to email your teacher. I'm going to, I'm going to say, this is what we did. This is what happened. We're going to be done for the night and I will, and I will handle whatever the teacher has to say. Um, because I know a lot of children, um, get very anxious if they don't finish their homework especially our high achievers um kids with a little bit of a perfectionist streak i've had many students come to me in tears and say i didn't finish my homework um and honestly as a teacher just try your best just try your best there's no need to cry over fourth grade math or reading there's no need to be upset about it just try your best and if you if it's making you upset just stop
0: That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Meg, for all of your amazing information today. I just there was so much in there. And I'm sure that our listeners are going to be processing all of that. And I'm sure it's going to be really helpful for everyone who's listening, who's dealing with kids of school age. Um, Can you tell everyone how they can find you? So all the things website, Instagram, Facebook, how can people find you if they want more information on you and the work that you do?
2: Um, You can find me at megflanagan.com. When you visit my website, I have three free resources right now. I have um, a, for military families or for families on the move, I have a stress-free PCS um, that helps families move schools with their child. I also have the IEP testing secrets um, email series and school success secrets. It's an ebook for parents to kind of walk you through the building blocks of school, like planning lunches. Set, doing um, setting up a good homework routine, emailing the teacher about homework, setting up a weekly um, family schedule. Um, just kind of those little things that you might not think about, um, but that make a successful school year. So that's MegFlanagan.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest at Meg Education. and you can find me on Twitter at MegFlanaganEd. So that's Meg Flanagan, Ed.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Meg. Thanks for being with us today. And, um, and just for all of the amazing information. We yes, really appreciate thank you it so much.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Wow. Well, that was amazing. I feel like I have a million more questions for her. We might have to have her back on yeah. to answer all my other questions.
1: My brain is tired, but in a good way, because mm-hmm. I learned a lot.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so um, if you, our listeners, uh, are interested in finding out more about Meg, um, you can go to megflanagan.com. Um, we will put in the show notes on the whatever platform you're using that has a little blurb about like what happens in this episode. We will put links to her website um, as well as she's going to give us a link to her three free tools. So if you're interested in one of those, if one of those appealed, you can just uh, click on
1: the episode itself and you should be able to link through from there which will be great and to make it easy for you and I do have a more of a stat today than a quote because here obviously at raising adults Kira and I are all about future mindset and not abdicating our role as parents and school is an area where I think We can maybe get tempted to go, oh, that's the school's job. I'll just sit back and relax. So just a little stat for you to think about from um, Jim Trelise, who's the author of the Read Aloud Handbook. And it says, in one school year, a child spends 7,800 hours at home and only 900 hours at school. So his question is, which teacher should be the most accountable?
0: Oh, that's good. No way. I guess if you include sleeping. Yeah, right? (laughs) But, but no, we're
1: accountable even then, right? Parents are on the clock.
0: Oh, yeah. Night. No, it makes so much sense. I think that's so true. It is easy to just think that, oh, well, they're going to get all that at school. I don't have to be involved. But actually, I loved that she was talking about the collaboration necessary yes um, between parent and school. And I also thought it was so interesting because you and I talk about modeling all the time and what are the conversations we're having in front of our kids and what are the ones yes. that need to happen privately. And I thought what she said was so interesting about, you know, if you say, I don't like your teacher. And she was talking about how the kid then might not like the teacher, might not like school. But I thought, what if that kid went to school and just parroted that? My Mm -hmm. mom doesn't like you. Mm -hmm. And now you've ruined the rapport between parent and teacher. Not just student and teacher, but parent and teacher. Well, think of the
1: ripple effect that could have.
0: Exactly. So again, it comes back to that thing we have talked about all the time. Little ears are listening. They're always, always listening. So making sure that what comes out of your mouth you would be happy for them to repeat <laughs> to anyone, to whoever. <laughs> exactly. Well, for more information on us, as always, you can go to futurefocusedparenting.com. And if you have a question you want to email us to do a little a spin cycle, info at futurefocusedparenting.com. Raising Adults is produced by Kira Dorian and Dina Thayer and recorded in my laundry room. Music by Seattle band Hannah Lee. Thanks for listening.